The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a very special guest, Brian Arthur, who is an economist. He is an author. His newest book is The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Brian is an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. He's a former professor at Stanford University, and I'm sure he has stories about that. Um, He's also a visiting researcher at Park, which is the Palo Alto Research Center, one of the pioneers of complexity theory, and I could go on and on and on, but Brian, let me just welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. It's great to have you. Now, now first, we have to get this right out of the way. You have to make us all jealous. Tell us where you are today. (laughs) Well, I'm sitting in a lovely house uh, in Maui overlooking the ocean, um, it's uh, a gorgeous day, the sun is shining, and there's uh, waves rolling in off the Pacific here, so it's quite lovely, and I'm here to sit and think. Oh, what a luxury, how nice. Well, and you know, sitting and thinking is something that you're well-practiced at, and we're going to talk about the importance of that in the development of ideas, but first... Um, Let's give people a little background about who you are. I mean, you, you are noted as, as a huge thinker. You are noted as somebody who um, does not accept the status quo but turns things on their head to, to look at them and question them in, in terms of ideas. And, you know, I've known you for um, a few years, and in the short time that I've known you, I have had the experience of sitting with you where you are just thinking out loud. And in, even in those short time periods when we are together, I find myself asking the question, how does he come up with this stuff? I just find it fascinating because, you know, not everybody is thinks in the same way. Now, Brian, talk to us a little bit about your background. Tell us a little bit about, you're from Ireland. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Well, I grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast, which has since become a little bit beleaguered. Uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I think I had a very uh, normal <laughs> childhood. Um, went to school there, and indeed I went to university there and studied engineering in Belfast. Uh, it was a very, uh, I'd say, a very solid uh, community. 
very traditional, at least when I grew up there, and uh, a very solid educational system. Of course, we had our difficulties, our tribal <laughs> difficulties between Catholic and Protestant. Yeah. My family had, uh, my mom had grown up as Protestant and my dad as Catholic, so it, oh. it was, uh, uh, for me, this was great because uh, I felt I very firmly straddled both sides. Uh, but it, it was a very solid community to grow up in and a very solid background. Well, so you you grew up having to uh, think differently from right out of the chute. I mean, you have two different religious beliefs in your household, and you had to learn about each, I'm assuming. And so instead of having to be um, stuck in one way of thinking, you had to see differently. Well, <clears throat> I guess I didn't realize that when I was growing up. <laughs> uh, the way I would put it is that uh, we we were very much uh, a province of the United Kingdom. Uh, previously, we'd been something of a colony of, of England, and uh, we certainly didn't. There was a big cultural difference between Ireland and England, uh, the dominant culture was England, but the education I had in primary school and secondary school was very much uh, upholding Ireland. And to some degree, it was like growing up in India under the Raj, mm. uh, growing up feeling that England was the dominant culture, but it was something of an occupying culture. Right. And so you learn very early on not to trust Authority are not just to take authority for granted because mm. the authorities were something slightly foreign to us or had been placed over us by something of a foreign power. All of that sounds very old-fashioned now because now we're all Europeans and these things don't matter. Uh, but this was uh, 50 years ago or more, so right. it did matter then. Right, right. Well, and of course, it matters today in the sense of history is important, and we need to remember, right? So, oh, absolutely, history is important, yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in Ireland. You had this experience. You moved into college. You went to um, university in Belfast, right? Yes, that's right. And and then and you started studying... Um, well, you didn't get into economics right away. What did you move into as a young person? Well, I started to study. I did study uh, electrical engineering oh. uh, for my bachelor's degree, <clears throat> and then in graduate school, uh, I came over to the United States and did a PhD eventually in Berkeley in operations research, basically applying mathematics. Uh, I did another graduate degree in mathematics, and basically this was applying mathematics to industry and to organization. Yeah. So a lot of my background is technical. Mm. Economics came along because uh, I had a lovely summer job one time in Germany working for McKinsey and Company, oh, right. and I realized they didn't need mathematicians or quantitative types 
they needed people who could understand the economy, and that meant uh, understanding economic history and understanding economics. So back I went to Berkeley uh, halfway through a PhD and started to study economics as uh, as a sideline. And, and the fascination you, never left me. And you're practical, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, I, I, I was taught economics in Berkeley as a bunch of theorems and proofs. But what really interested me was bricks and mortar and what was going on out there, especially in third world countries like uh, Bangladesh or places that later I came to visit and and become expert on. Hmm. So what was it about economics that um, was so intriguing for you? God, I wish I could answer that. I think <laughs> it was uh, it was just the uh, the the parade of of one thing after another. I think it was Winston Churchill who was asked what history was one time, and he, he said, uh, "History, history is one damned thing after another." <laughs> and I think what interested me was not so much the economy as some static thing that's growing, yeah. but as a structure, a set of human behaviors and organizations that was always changing, like beads in a kaleidoscope, always changing and unfolding, and somehow that evolution, that whole panoply of change, that caught my attention, and I've been fascinated since. Hmm. And it varies all over the world. What's happening, say, in India is very different from, say, what's happening here, where I am in Hawaii at the moment, or California, for that matter. Right, right. Well, you know, you talk about this in your book and how we, how technology shapes the economy. And um, I want to get into that in a minute. But this book is being touted as brilliant and as being something that is really going to turn technology um, on its head, in a way, um, because you asked the question, what is the nature of technology? And tell us a bit about that question itself. What, I mean, you know, on the face of it, one might think, you know, well, what's the big deal about that question? But the way you approach it is vitally important for people to understand. So talk about that. Yeah, it's a strange, for me it was a strange fixation. I started to study engineering when I was about, uh, I'd just turned 17, and I was not really clear what engineering or technology was. I mean, it's one of these things you recognize it when you see it. And when I began to read deeper, there were plenty of people willing to define technology, but all the answers I was getting were quite different. Um, uh, some people said it was just engineering practice, and some people said it's applied science, and uh, some people even think it's iPods and iPhones and <laughs> iPads and things like that. And so what was this object? And I began to realize that technology is not just important to our world, 
that in no small way technology creates our world. And it creates uh, the buildings, it creates everything we have, our cars, our, our food, our, our toilets, uh, everything that we use that makes us different from the Stone Age is some aspect of technology. Well, wouldn't you and say... I began to realize that we understand technology in a great amount of detail, just like we understand all the compositions and music. Say since fifteen hundred, we have all the all the scores and all the notes of every composer. Uh, but that doesn't explain what makes music musical. Mm-hmm. And so I began to realize that what makes technology technology, <laughs> what the essence of technology was is using some phenomenon uh, for a purpose. So we managed to harness the way electrons work and maybe use that uh, for some purpose in, a, in an old-fashioned vacuum tube or in a television. Uh, we harness how photons operate, and we can use that in fiber-optic cables and so on. We can harness... Uh, the phenomenon that uh, wood floats uh, in the prehistoric past and hollow out uh, uh, tree trunks into canoes and and create primitive uh, boats that way. But one way or another, we're always using a bunch of phenomena uh, to achieve some purpose. And that's really what fascinated me. It all went back to natural phenomena. Well, and... So you, you, you said in the beginning of that that technology creates our world, and but don't we create the technology? Oh, absolutely. Technology creates our world. Uh, so far, thank God, humans create technology. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't quite got to, to the, the, the stage where it's uh, technology is, uh, machines are, are reproducing or anything like that. Not quite yet. Uh, but, uh, yes, we humans are creating technology. Mm. But nevertheless, uh, one of the themes of my book is that new technologies are created as combinations of old ones. So if you're putting together any new technology, uh, just say an iPod, um, what you're doing is putting together, say, some flash memory that already exists right. with maybe a little screen, and the screens exist with dials and uh, processors, and those already exist. So anytime we put together a new technology, we're creating it out of technologies that already exist. And in that sense, it's <laughs> we're a little bit like the little organisms or polyps that create a coral reef, Technology is creating technology uh, with us humans being the organisms that make that happen. But technology itself grows out of earlier technologies. It doesn't come out of thin air. So, so we as humans are only as smart as our last idea <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and how much we can how creative we can be about what we can combine it with or turn it into. Is that right? Well, yeah, I, mean, I certainly don't want to play down human beings. Uh, you know, we are extraordinarily creative. 
and technology has created in people's imaginations, and I certainly don't want to play that down, but the, it's, it's like creating new Lego structures out of existing Lego blocks, mm. and then those new structures fuse together to become yet another building block for more new structures. Mm. But all the time, where, where, where are the kids that are putting the Lego blocks together here? So we're very much in the center of it mm. as humans. So you mentioned earlier that the natural world is at the center of technology and the in the nature of technology. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, it, uh, ultimately, as I said, all technologies are created out of natural phenomena. Um, you know, 50,000 years ago, 80,000 years ago, uh, we learned, say, how to create fire, or at least to preserve fire if it was created by lightning. And so we learned to use the phenomenon of fire, and we learned in due course, uh, you know, how to create uh, maybe to pound uh, seeds and material using stone against stone. Uh, we learned how to use deer's antlers and sapling to create bows and so on. So we were picking up phenomena on the forest floor, so to speak, and harnessing that and making very primitive technologies out of that. Uh, then we learned how to harness wind and, say, for ships, uh, and water, as in water power and so on. So up through the Middle Ages, we got very good at harnessing other natural phenomena. And then in the modern era, dating from about 1600 on, we got more and more sophisticated. We started to capture the optical phenomena and then the chemical phenomena, the electrical ones, the electronic ones, the, the quantum ones in the last uh, 70 or 80 years. And we're making more and more sophisticated technologies out of those with new building blocks creating yet more building blocks. So it's a bootstrapping story of us learning to use phenomena and getting much more sophisticated about that and then combining the elements that we've created into yet further elements. It's a little bit like creating a new chemistry that we start with a few primitive atoms. We learn to create certain molecules, and out of those molecules, we create still further ones. But everything we are using, from iPads to uh, to jet airliners uh, to nuclear reactors, it is all physical phenomena in the long run. And that's why I called the book The Nature of Technology, uh, because technology comes out of nature, maybe not out of green leaf nature <laughs> all the time, but as out of quantum nature, out of electronic nature, out of natural phenomena. Well, we're going to talk more about this with Brian Arthur when we come right back. Arise from your sleep, Africa.
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you ready to get freed up? Join Dr. Jennifer Freed, one of America's leading psychological thinkers, for a groundbreaking program with fascinating guests and full participation from you. Freed Up will explore topics like liberation in long-term relationships, parenting in the 21st century, comfort in stressful times, and much more. Tune in to Freed Up every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and wake up to the heartbeat of your life. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking today with Brian Arthur, author of The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Brian, before we went to break, you were giving us um, a real in-depth look at what the nature of technology is. And, you know, as I listen to you, I think, and I said this at the top of the show, that, you know, I so appreciate the way you see things, and when I, whenever I'm listening to you, I always think to myself, how does he come up with this stuff? And, and that is because you have a different way of seeing or a different way of taking an idea and looking at it or deconstructing it. And I'm wanting to know, you know, how do you, how do you keep yourself kind of fit for this? You know, like an athlete has to be fit in order to stay at the top of their game. You know, you, your contribution to this world is really about um, big thoughts, big thinking. How do you keep, you know, what disciplines do you practice to keep yourself fit for that? Um, yeah, I, I, this is one of these questions that's hard to answer because I've never thought about it much before, but I suppose I would say like most people who put ideas together, I do a tremendous amount of reading. Um, I read, and uh, since I was about uh, seven or eight years old, nearly all my readings have been non-fiction, and of course I read a lot of fiction as well, but I'd say four books out of five are non-fiction. I'm absolutely fascinated by science. Uh, I talk to scientists. I, uh, I, when I was an economist at Stanford, I hung out a lot with biologists, and I learned a lot from them. When I was at the Santa Fe Institute, I talked a lot with uh, physicists and so on. 
So I, I get a lot of my inspiration from talking to people and from reading. Mm-hmm. There are deeper places as well, I suppose. So if you spend time reading and talking to people, you also must have to have time for quiet where you can let some of these ideas marinate and develop and evolve. So what, what, where do you go for quiet? Yeah, um, one of the things I noticed when I was writing the book uh, was um, that people who I studied uh, for several years, people who invented technologies, the um, Harry Mullis, for example, invented the polymer, the polymerase chain reaction. It's the thing that greatly amplifies little strands of DNA. You know, important on television and forensic uh, <laughs> detective shows and so on. And um, I noticed one thing about all these people, uh, whether they invented laser printers or, or even the laser itself, that. They had a life of reading, and they had a life of working things out. And but they, just about all of them, had this uh, ability somehow to disappear into solitude and to create almost as if they had an empty whiteboard somewhere and were able to just sit alone and and mm-hmm. write um, things on the whiteboard to sit and ponder. And I think, uh, so I'll give you two answers to your question. One is that I was very lucky. Uh, my professor at Berkeley, when I was doing a PhD, Stuart Dreyfus, never allowed me to borrow other people's finished work. <laughs> he oh. said, you know, sit down and work this out. These are mathematical problems. And I would say, oh, I can use this or that. No, no, he would say, Think about it from first principles and come back next week and show me how to prove this. But from first principles and the most simple version of the problem you can find. And so I feel very lucky that I was always asked to think from first principles. Mm. And the other is a practice of my own. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a practice, but a habit where... I like to sit in um, airplanes or sometimes in trains and chew the end of a pencil and actually very often think of nothing. And then after a while, thoughts bubble up. Uh, you, you have everybody, I think, has problems and questions they couldn't answer. And if you sit long enough, <laughs> answers will bubble up or at least glimmers of answers. And you can say, oh, oh yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I also have another uh, practice, and um, it's one you're familiar with, I know, Cheryl, and that is uh, I go out in nature a lot. Mm-hmm. And every so often I might go out in nature for a week at a time to be alone and uh, meditate, uh, go off into the wilderness. And um, I've been doing that now for close to 20 years. Mm. Uh, And uh, I find that very, very useful. I don't go off to think about any problem. I just go off to to be alone and meditate and 
I think uh, one enters a deeper and deeper space, and then these little bubbles of ideas come up, and um, things that are bothering you come up, uh, annoyances come up, (laughs) boredom Mm -hmm. comes up. But it's a very good way to empty out the hassles and to renew oneself. And um, I've been doing this under the supervision of John Milton, uh, as I know you have. And I find this... uh, John Milton, who's an ecologist and uh, and great uh, uh, thinker about meditation, great teacher... And so I find this sort of thing very, very useful. It keeps the pipes clean and keeps everything, uh, keeps the mental process moving. It keeps uh, keeps me mentally healthy. I don't know what else I could say. And uh, I notice a lot of creative people do live their own version of that. Yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating that um, you know one of your one of your practices is to. Um, go out in nature where you don't have technology, where you don't have any of the material accoutrements, and, and and yet you know some of your biggest ideas are around technology, and and systems that you know we have created like economics, etc. And so I'm wondering about that. Um, the importance of being outside of something in order to be able to think deeply about it. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. um, I think that there... I, I do think that people who think deeply about anything... Uh, are not usually day-to-day engaged with that particular thing. I'm sure if I were a practicing engineer, I'd be too close to technology to think much uh, about about it fundamentally. Um, but what you find is when people actually do think about something and say something about it, what you'll find is that they're sitting outside it usually, observing it very closely, mm-hmm. but not necessarily, not necessarily being part of that mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So someone, uh, well, the, these are just uh, examples from, uh, from the past, but someone like Adam Smith in the 1700s who thought originally uh, very deeply about the economy was not a businessman, nor in charge of um, any exchequer. He wasn't in charge of, uh, he wasn't finance minister or anything like that. He was something of a moral philosopher observing what uh, made uh, nations wealthy and pondering that, and he pondered for several decades. So I think you find this again and again, that people are happy enough to sit outside something and the difference is maybe um, they wonder, rather than, say, be in the weather, uh, experiencing rain and, and wind and storms, they sit outside and wonder what makes the weather. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the difference really is uh, curiosity. I'm, I imagine I'm 
conjecturing all of this, but my hero actually is Charles Darwin, who was an incredible observer. He observed coral reefs and atolls, and he observed beetles, and he observed shells that he found on top of the Andes and so on. And when someone asked uh, Darwin what his um, what his peculiar gift was, he said, I am a man of enlarged curiosity. And I think this goes for all researchers, uh, more humble ones uh, included, uh, who aren't Darwin's uh, people, people who like to look at fundamental questions are curious. What is it that makes the world? Why is there a world as opposed to nothing? What is consciousness? Mm-hmm. What is music? What is technology? What is uh, what is biological evolution? How would that work? Mm-hmm. And so on. And I think that um, I'm not saying these people are very few. I think there's plenty of people have those sorts of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's really a matter, um, in my opinion, coming up with theory is not so much answering questions as asking questions. Mm-hmm. And as a professor... I don't think we teach students enough to ask questions. We're always teaching them to answer questions. Right. But the real, the real uh, breakthroughs come when people just ask questions. You know, that's so important, and I absolutely agree, Brian, that we don't teach people enough of that. And um, it's interesting to me, if I, if I look at our society right now, and, and especially in the U.S., but certainly around the world too, but especially in the U.S., where um, people proclaim themselves to have some level of expertise about something via, you know, i.e. the politics, the political system, um, you know, the economic system, whatever. And so they decide they're expert. They claim themselves to be expert. They they make their they state their opinion, and um, and then the press is off and running with it, and you know it becomes news for 15 minutes, and and then suddenly there's this whole um, gathering of people across the U.S. who decide, well, that's the right thing, and so they stand up and they start yelling and screaming, knowing nothing about whatever that topic is. And there's so much of that going on, and there's so much of that that is influencing people's understanding or lack of understanding about ideas, about concepts, about real issues that we're facing. I mean, how do we break through all that? How do we get back to some real discourse in helping people to understand or to just look at what real issues are, to be asking questions. How do we get back to that? Well, I, uh, one answer is uh, uh, perhaps a little more tolerance of uh, people. Uh, the the um, U.S., or let's just say the modern Western culture, not just the U.S., yeah. is really a culture of doing, the culture of, you know, don't bore me with this... Uh, uh, any kind of deep theorizing, just give me the answers and let's get on with business and and um, let's also entertain ourselves. So we tend to want to snap our fingers and have interesting, entertaining answers to things and 
uh, sound bite answers and so on. And um, but I think there've always, through history, been people who wanted to sit down and ponder things, and they've not always been very well tolerated either in history. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so the the least we can do in answer to your question is to make sure that there are institutions and universities where people uh, can think and ponder and chew the end of a pencil. And there's no shortage of people who do that. And there always will be people who do that. Uh, the media are a little bit impatient because mm-hmm. if someone's coming up with deep theories in mathematics, it it doesn't really uh, sell advertising time or, or space. So mm-hmm. uh, it's much easier to uh, give a soundbite more controversial opinion and so on. But I think we just uh, we calm down and allow people to think. That's the, that's my answer. <laughs> uh, so you, you think this is by design, huh? No, it's not so much by design. It's that uh, we've got in something of a frenzied world mm-hmm. now where we prize action and uh-huh. profits and entertainment and you know those have brought us a lot of well-being and a lot of welfare and and a lot of uh, profit and money and and uh, so why not prize those things but it makes the more contemplative life of someone being say uh, a philosopher in a university uh, maybe less prized than was the case uh, 150 years ago. Right. I know, uh, I certainly think that people don't prize reading classics as much mm-hmm. as they did uh, a century or two ago. Right. We're, we're in a more frenzied time. Well, we have more to talk about with Brian Arthur when we come right back. Arise from your sleep, Africa. Rise from your sleep, Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Brian Arthur today, author of The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Brian, as an economist and, and I might add, an award-winning, world-renowned economist um, and someone who has spent a lot of time studying and thinking about systems and how systems work, um, talk to us a bit about the accumulation of wealth. You, you, I read that you said um, that you believe that our wealth and our well-being all emerge out of technologies. And so when I hear that statement just, you know, out of context without anything else, I think, hmm. So how did the technologies get us to where we are today? You know, was it the technologies that allowed us to um, have all this craziness in the stock market and Wall Street and et cetera and, and the ultimate the economic system shakeout, so to speak. Um, is that what you mean? Um, no, I, I mean uh, something maybe a little more basic than that. When I say that uh, the economy arises out of technologies, uh, basically if you start to think about an economy, it's nothing more than the set of arrangements we make as human beings to fulfill our needs. Hmm. So if you look at those arrangements, there may be uh, surgical procedures, uh, there may be uh, getting hold of uh, uh, food, there may be transporting ourselves, entertaining ourselves. Those are all Hmm. arrangements, and those arrangements themselves are... You can think of them as means to purposes or technologies, and certainly they're usually helped along or mediated by what we consider as technologies, X-ray devices, scalpels, uh, um, methods and procedures, etc., etc. So it's not just that the economy contains technologies, it's basically that the economy is the set of those sets of arrangements, and they themselves are methods and devices and organizations. In a wide sense, those are all technologies. So the economy is its uh, technologies, plus a bunch more things, uh, human behavior and human action and so on, that aren't quite technologies. Hmm. and then this other question: How did how did we get in such a mess uh, recently? <laughs> and is technology part of the reason for that? Yeah, I think technology is plenty. Uh, it, we certainly uh, built a house of cards of mm-hmm. uh, new, uh, if you like, new uh, financial technologies derivatives financial derivatives that were created out of financial derivatives that were created out of some underlying right. uh, things like uh, 
people paying back their mortgages and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, we, we did uh, get a little bit intoxicated with financial technologies. Um, personally, I also think that uh, what we just went through was a lot of economists would say the same thing, uh, so that there's nothing original about this. Most economists would say uh, we got into a bubble, got carried away with housing prices. There was an awful lot of money sloshing around, some of it coming in from China, uh, where we had... Uh, purchased uh, Chinese goods and had all these dollars they needed to do something with. So, um, and then all we needed was a few casino tables and, uh, mm-hmm. and banks were allowed to play at the casinos right. and uh, the casino tables had names like mortgage-based uh, derivatives and fancier, uh, mm-hmm. uh, fancier types of insurance derivatives and so on. And the players were everybody from uh, Main Street uh, gamblers and investors to uh, banks uh, at the casino with our money. And um, it all got a bit out of hand. There, in my opinion, there wasn't enough adult supervision, and we dismantled the regulations too soon. And I think that my own discipline, economics, is somewhat to blame, not totally, but a little bit to blame because um, we allowed politicians to misinterpret what we were saying. Most economists would say it's great to have a free market, uh, but you need some rules of the game and those rules need to be enforced. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, a lot of people... Uh, especially in politics, uh, quite a few people were saying it's great to have a free market, <laughs> full stop. And we, disma- we allowed um, the rules and regulations to get a bit too dismantled, starting in the Clinton era and going on through the last 10 years or more. And the result was um, that... Uh, everything got out of hand and the house of cards collapsed and it brought down a lot with it. It brought down whole countries like Iceland. Ireland has badly suffered and there's been other countries. And I needn't say anything about the U.S. We've all had tremendous problems. I think there's a question that hasn't been asked and needs to be asked by economists and politicians. And it's this. um, If we are considering a new policy, say, deregulating some markets. We need to not just celebrate the fact that we're opening the market up to competition or whatever the standard view is. That's fine. But we need to ask, what is the obvious way that that new regulation can be gamed or strategized against? Because there's always smart people out there ready to say, hey, this is a big opportunity for me, uh, possibly to do something nefarious or semi-legal, but to take advantage of the situation. So I think that we've been a little bit too naive, 
And we haven't been looking at one move or two moves ahead in any chess game, just been saying, next obvious thing to do is to deregulate this. And, oh, my God, five years later, there's a crisis, there's a financial bubble, uh, people lose a lot of money. And, and you will find always that there are economists and journalists who saw what was coming, yeah. but there is no official way for them to be heard. And they're usually, um, they're usually shouted down in right. all the excitement about free markets. So I am not a free market fundamentalist. Mm. I'm all for adult supervision. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I well, think- I think that <laughs> I, do, I, I, like all other economists, I revere the market. So I'm yes. not for uh, tight social planning or anything, but uh, I, I like markets. But, you know, it's like liking tennis or liking football. Uh, there are rules, and the game gets out of hand if those right. rules are not observed. Right, right. Well, I love that you, again, your way of seeing is different from most people, where you said, you know, so what is the obvious way that any of these new regulations can be gamed or strategized against? I mean, just just that simple turning it on its head to look at it differently, um, you know, sounds sounds like, well, of course somebody's going to be thinking of that, aren't they? But Apparently not, you know, otherwise we never would have gotten to where we ended up a couple of years ago. Well, uh, yeah, there are people. Who, I, was, I was not one of them, but there are uh, quite a few economists, maybe you could even say a dozen or so, uh, who did see uh, warning signals about what was coming. And uh, there, are, there are people who maybe spy the wolf approaching the mm-hmm. flock. Um, what I'm saying is that we should get out there any time we have a flock of sheep and we open the gates. Mm. We should have people posted with binoculars watching for what the wolves can do and where they're going to come from. Yeah. So, Brian, you know, as our world evolves and we continue to move into the 21st century, um, I'm wondering what you think... You know, what skills, what practices, what ways of being in the world um, should we be cultivating, either as adults or building muscle in children for? I mean, what, what should we be doing as, as a human species to move more successfully into the 21st century? Well, one thing I would say is that... Uh, Maybe um, uh, there are a lot of people, of course, who have ideas about this. Uh, All I can give you is a few of my own private ideas here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would certainly say that um, we should, there is no harm to be more thoughtful Mm -hmm. in being more thoughtful about the world we live in. Uh, We should not blindly accept technology. Technology does us a lot of good. You can think about all the medical technology we have, and uh, certainly if you are suffering from something awful, uh, say breast cancer or something, you're very glad that there's a wealth of technology or know-how out there. 
uh, other times technology gets a bit out of hand, and I think we need to uh, cultivate or cheer on uh, the whole idea of pondering things deeply and pondering life deeply. Mm. I remember I was educated as an engineer, and for four years, this is in the British system, uh, I had never any other course than engineering courses. There were no choices. And uh, I badly missed the idea that I could have had a wider, uh, more humanities-based education. So I definitely think anything that gets us to ponder deeply about life. Mm. And I'm a great deeply about life, about classics, about thought. Uh, not everybody has that temperament, but we can certainly make it available to students and to adults uh, in general. And there's missing something in the Western culture that exists in the East and certainly in Japan, and that is that people can be, adults can be fully engaged in business or in the economy and in Japan, sometimes they can disappear for six months into a ah. Zen monastery and contemplate and then come back into society. And that's something that's very well understood in Asia, that mm. dichotomy between withdrawing from the world to ponder it and then being in the world and being part of it. Mm. And we're missing that second dimension of uh, withdrawing a little and pondering, there are elements of that in Western society. There's public libraries. There's, uh, but maybe the nearest we get to that is uh, Pete's uh, coffee or Starbucks, where we can sit and ponder life with a, with a cappuccino, uh, and sometimes with a friend or two. And I cheer that on, but I'd love to see more of that uh, in the world. And yeah. certainly that's what feeds me is yeah. being in the world and then um, pondering it. And I, I do think that I would love to see more balance in, in the U.S. and in Europe mm. where we can get away and uh, be by ourselves and be in nature and so on. As I said, there's plenty of it. People do go hiking and camping, but we don't have a, a very deep tradition of, of, of making that formal or getting away. Right. We're too caught up. Well, and, you know, you and I both have had the experience, as you mentioned earlier in the show, um, of going out into nature, doing solo, having solo time, um, spending, up, you know, 7, 21 28 days out in nature um, with a teacher, you know, who as who prepares you and guides you. And John Milton is is the one teacher that you and I have in common. And um, and John likes Starbucks. <laughs> he likes to go to Starbucks <laughs> and drink his mocha. You know, so I think you're on to something there. Um, but you know, I I think that the power of silence. I've never heard my brain so loudly as when I was sitting on the side of a mountain or sitting on a deserted stretch of beach um, on the Baja coastline um, for days on end, and I had no idea my brain was that loud. And so, you know, from that 
can come from really um, big thoughts, thoughts I never knew I had, and I'm sure you've had that experience. And so, you know, I think that put a little plug in there for taking time out. I think we all need to do more of that. Oh, I love that idea, and I love the phrase, the power of silence. Um, I Like you, I've gone out for a whole month uh, alone and in silence with no radios or no watch, no anything, mm-hmm. except a tent and a little bit of food. Yeah. And uh, silence is a great teacher. Uh, contemplation, being alone, any any part of that. Yeah. And... I find that uh, paradoxically it's that emptiness that fills us, it it feeds us, Mm -hmm. and uh, wonderful. I certainly agree with you on that. Well, Brian, it's been great having you here today. We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, I know people will want to know more about you and your book, The Nature of Technology, what it is and how it evolves. So where can they learn more about you, Brian? Well, my website is www.santafe, all one word, uh, .edu slash Arthur, santafe.edu slash Arthur. Great. Wonderful. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being here. It's been an honor having you. Good luck with the book. It is a wonderful read. I highly recommend it. And remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. Aloha, Brian. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.